Welcome to the Tanya Acker Show. I'm Tanya Acker. Donald Trump and Vladimir Putin had the same point of view that everyone else did on election day in 2016, which is that Donald Trump was not going to be president. And so if Donald Trump was not going to be president, he was interested in making money. And the Kremlin was interested in him as an opposition political figure in the United States. That was Javier Alberto Botero. He is the lead producer and co-director of the new HBO film Agents of Chaos. The film tells the story of Russian interference in the 2016 election. And it tells the story in a way where you can really understand how all of that happened, why it was important then, and it also makes clear why it's important right now. Here I am with Javier. Javier, welcome. Thanks for being here. No, thank you. And you were embedded in Russia while you were working on this project. So first tell me, how did you end up embedded in Russia for over two years, as I understand it? Well, not that long. It was, (laughs) we were working on this film for about three and a half years. So we started working on it shortly after the last presidential election, right after the inauguration. Alex, the director of, of both parts, Alex Gibney, he was approached for an interview about this story that was bubbling up at that point of, you know, was there something that happened in the election related to Russian interference? And so he went out and did this sort of mysterious interview with someone who said they had information. And it turned out to be um, this former journalist uh, named Glenn Simpson, who had been doing an investigation to Trump during the election, had his firm had stumbled on this story of collusion between Donald Trump and his campaign and and the Russian government. It was obviously a fascinating story. It was fascinating for Alex. Um, He brought me in shortly after that. Um, We'd worked together for on a few other films connected to national security topics, connected to to cyber warfare. And so it just felt sort of natural for me to come on to this one. And uh, it was clear from the beginning that I, I came on just as a story was sort of not just, I mean, taking off, but kind of taking over. And it felt like there was there was new uh, information about this coming out every day, and it was coming out on the front pages of, of you know every newspaper in the country. And the one thing that seemed clear to us from the beginning was that it seemed like there was a side of the story that was missing, which was the Russian side. It was a story about what had happened over, over there, why the decisions had well, been made. Well, would you say the Russian side, you mean what happened in Russia as opposed to Russia's perspective on this story, correct? Both, I think. I think it's um, what happened in Russia, you know, why the interference looked the way it did, what actually happened, who was actually involved. You know, those were, story, those were pieces that were coming out in the reporting, but there was a sort of high-level understanding that seemed missing. You know, why there was this, the U.S. government by this point had, you know, the Obama administration before they left had said, the Russian government definitely did this. It went all the way to the top. You know, they sort of pointed the finger right at Putin as, as they were leaving. But there wasn't that much understanding beyond that. And it seemed strange that there was so much reporting on this story, but it seemed not to be paying attention to that angle and trying to understand why. Can I um, back you up for a second? Yeah, Can I back please. you up for a second? Because we're talking about the story of Russian interference in the 2016 election, which, frankly we've been talking about for the last four years. And as I sit here as somebody who has 
you know, followed that story pretty closely. It's not my daily life and passion. I've paid attention to it. I've drawn some, I think, very well-supported conclusions from it. But my perception, Javier, is that if you're on one side of the aisle, you believe it matters. If you're on the other side of the aisle, you don't believe it matters. Does your movie add anything new to the conversation? Or do you think it has the possibility of changing a mind? Because it seems to me that everybody's already made up their minds about what this means or doesn't mean. Yeah, I, I hope it, it has that that potential. And, and I think that's absolutely right. People come to this, you know, with the same polarized points of view that they come to a lot of things these days. And, and this story particularly, you know, people get got driven to two sides. And, you know, if you go back to that beginning of 2017, I think the people who thought it mattered kept thinking not only did it matter, but there was some dark conspiracy that was going on. And the people who thought it didn't matter kept going further and further towards it, not not only not mattering, but it, it was a big hoax. It was a witch hunt, right? And today you have sort of everybody in the country, I feel like kind of, you fall into one of three camps, which is like, you either think that Trump was a Manchurian candidate, or you think that it was all a witch hunt, or you think, you know, there was a whole lot of reporting about that whole Russia thing, but I don't really know what it meant in the end. It was too confusing. It seemed like it was important at times. Other times it seemed like it was a big letdown. It wasn't the whole Mueller report thing supposed to figure this out. And I still don't quite get it. Why did it matter? And so I think our film hopefully actually can speak to all three of those groups, to be honest, because I think when you go back and look at the big, we, I mean, we obviously spent a lot of time on this, but we're also coming at it with some of the benefit of, of hindsight too. And we saw, we saw the story developed over time. We dug in and we dug up a lot of details that, that weren't known previously, but we also had the advantage of being able to come and rely on some of the amazing investigative work that had been done both by journalists and by government investigators. Uh, the Mueller team, you know, get, I think they sometimes get short shrift in terms of the, the great investigative work they did. They were very bad storytellers, but good investigative work. When you piece it all together, it's a pretty amazing picture that I think showed that Trump wasn't a Manchurian candidate. There was a sort of collusion happening, but it was happening in, in plain sight. It was happening in front of our eyes. Tell us what you mean by that. There's a great line in the in one of our interviewees has in the second part of the, the film, this uh, historian, Timothy Snyder, who um, says, let's not use the word collusion. Let's call it seduction. And I think, you know, one of the things we do in our film is sort of a cap to a thread that we, we weave throughout, which is the film is not, we tried not to be obsessed with Trump, Trump everywhere in the film. He's actually, he's just a, in some ways, he's the main character, but he's standing right off stage, right? Sort of a, he's not in every minute. And, but you, when you see him, you, you go back to, go back to the, the archive and, and it's not, not hard to see, you know, and most people can see this. He's got an affinity for, for all things Russia, for, for Putin. It hasn't changed in four years, not, not a bit. And we ended up with the conclusions we did that it wasn't, he wasn't a Manchurian candidate. And the one thing that always made me hesitate was, boy, this guy really likes Russia and acts in very strange ways towards, towards Russia, towards the Kremlin, towards Russian interests in ways that seem to be contrary to his own personal interests even and get in the way of the things that he wants to do. It's really strange and it's easy to understand how so many people come, at, come to this story thinking that it really mattered. They wanted to end up in a place where there must be some other explanation. And, you know, where we ended up after looking at all the evidence, after talking to all the, the folks who were involved in this, 
it seems that it was uh, simpler than that. Trump has a, obviously admires authoritarian leaders all over the world, not just Vladimir Putin. He was doing a business deal in Russia. He'd been trying to do business deals in Russia for years. And, you know, from everything we could see and, and from reporting that a lot of other people did as well, it seems pretty clear that Donald Trump and Vladimir Putin had the same point of view that everyone else did on election day in 2016, which is that Donald Trump was not going to be president. And so if Donald Trump was not going to be president, he was interested in making money. And the Kremlin was interested in him as an opposition political figure in the United States. You know, they had these deep relationships with opposition figures all over the democratic world, deep relationships with opposition figures in the UK, in France, in Italy. A lot of these relationships are monetary. Some of them better documented than, than any relationship they had with Trump. I mean, it's tens of billions of dollars that, that have gone to Italian politicians, that have gone to, to French politicians. And these are people who, you know, Russia doesn't expect to ever be in power, but are sort of are in the pu public eye in these countries and pushing the Russian line. They share their interests and they just share it naturally or, or organically. Trump was the same way. And Trump was going to be this sort of ultimate opposition figure for them here in the U.S. And then something funny happened that no one expected, which is everyone. It was just a perfect storm. And he won. And part of it, you know, as we document in the film, was getting help from Russia. The Russian help was more effective, I think, than they thought it would be, too. They didn't expect it would help him win. They, they just thought it would make it close and it would cause a lot of chaos and destabilize a Hillary Clinton presidency. And as the movie points out, this was a strategy that had first been tested and proven on Russian political opponents and the Ukraine. Can you tell us a little bit about that? Yeah, absolutely. And, you know, we don't spend too much time on it in the film, but even before Ukraine in Russia itself, a, a lot of the, the tactics were, were used on protesters and, and on political opposition figures in Russia in the early 2011, 2012, as Putin, Putin stepped away from being president for a while and he was coming back. And as he was coming back, suddenly there was this full court press in terms of basically delegitimizing any sort of opposition voices in Russia. That got turned up to, to 11 when there was this political conflict in Ukraine. Ukraine is, you know, we've got a, we've got a line from this piece of archive of, of Putin in the film where he says, Ukraine's not our ally, it's our fraternal nation. And it's, it's accurate. In every Ukrainian would say this to you too. You, you know, Russia is the closest country to Ukraine and vice versa. They, they have a history that goes back a thousand years. Most Ukrainians speak Russian as well as Ukrainian. And so when you have this very deep relationship, the conflict that started up that we document, you know, that we talk about in the film, that we remind viewers, the history here, uh, it was brother against brother sort of um, conflict. And it was a really bitter struggle. And Russia was not going to allow that to just just happen. They weren't going to allow Ukraine to basically, I mean, I'm, I'm trying to avoid getting into the whole history here, but this fraternal nation was turning towards Europe. They didn't want the sort of authoritarian uh, legacy of the Soviet Union that they were that, you know, Russia clearly has been embracing more and more. So rather than go down the path that Vladimir Putin was sort of laying out for them, you know, Ukraine as a country, they were they wanted to go towards Europe. They wanted to go towards uh, European freedoms, towards the European economy and market, uh, ability to travel. And uh, Putin didn't want anything to do with that. And, and he personally chose to not only crack down on it, on this other country, a political opposition in another country. I mean, they invaded the country. They annexed a piece of it and cut off a piece of it. And today it's 
for all intents and purposes, de facto a part of Russia. It's, it's amazing that it happened the first time since World War II. We sort of forget that history. And while they were doing it, they were crafting these tools on the internet, using hacking, using social media, disinformation, taking the, the history of Russian disinformation into a new into the 21st century and creating these weapons, basically, that they were then able to take to, they realized, with, you know, they were incredibly effective in Ukraine. Why not use these other places? And of course, the main enemy for, for the Russian intelligence establishment is the United States, and we had an election coming up. And you, the movie, Agent of Chaos, uh, it premieres on HBO Wednesday, September 23rd, part two, Thursday, September 24th. In this film, the film documents the story and the creation of a troll farm. Now, I don't think a lot of people know exactly how they operate, what they are. It's now become you know, just sort of a garden variety political put down now to say that somebody's trolling you. Explain to us how these troll farms worked in the United States, because rightly or wrongly, I don't think the Ukrainian story is one that's really um, compelling to a lot of Americans, especially right now. Like we're locked up at home. We're trying to figure out our own election in a few months. People are out of work. Uh, again, People rightly or wrongly. Ukrainian news? Yeah, yeah, I mean, exactly. Surprise, <laughs> surprise. They're not following Ukrainian news. Tell us why this is important to Americans right now. The importance to going back to 2016 is that in the partisan fight over this story, what uh, ended up being lost for a lot of people turned into like a cudgel, political cudgel, right? And people are kind of just like fighting over it and doesn't it almost like we, we lost the substance of it. What actually happened? And when you go back into 2016 and see what Russian actors were doing here in the U.S. election, it's, it's shocking, right, to, to see it afresh. One of the things that was, I think, most malicious was this trolling operation online. It was an attack on the political discussion and debate in this country. You know, it wasn't an attempt to change votes in a, in a voting booth. It was changing them in our heads, right? Basically, there was a the, the main actor. There were a few different groups that were involved, but the main actor was this company, uh, business actually, in St. Petersburg, Russia, called the Internet Research Agency. And uh, this is the, the infamous Troll Factory. It's actually owned and controlled by uh, a caterer a guy who started off as a hot dog salesman in, in St. Petersburg and sort of became a restaurateur, met Vladimir Putin, who happens to be from the same town and, you know, has worked his way up over the years. And uh, he's known as Putin's chef today. And he's a guy who's got connections in the Kremlin and he's not, he doesn't work for the Russian government, but it sort of has this, you scratch my back, I'll scratch yours relationship with a lot of the, the pieces of the Russian government departments like the Ministry of Defense. He's these massive contracts that he gets from the Russian government. And in return, he runs these sort of basically what, what amount to off the books government operations. These, these things that where the Kremlin can maintain deniability because they don't have to operate the troll farm themselves, but they got this guy and they know that they can rely on him to, to do the dirty work for them. The dirty work in this case being interference in the U.S. political system. So this guy started out interfering in, Ru in Russian politics against anti-Kremlin uh, opposition figures. They did it in Ukraine, and they did it very effectively there, helped create some, a civil war in Ukraine. And they stepped up their game and decided, you know what, the U.S. election is coming up. Putin had a big bone to pick with, with Hillary Clinton. And, we remember. 
<laughs> yeah. <laughs> and this guy, the Putin's chef, stepped up and basically built a, an American department, an English language department in his troll factory. The troll factory itself was a pretty simple thing. It was go out and find a bunch of mostly young people, a lot of like recent college grads, a lot of people had studied journalism, young college grad who comes out into an industry and can't find a job. And so what do they do? I mean, there's this and this company seems that's like actually, a pretty, I mean, in, in terms of skills required, this was a pretty easy job. I mean, one of the things that Agent of Chaos does, I thought quite well, was it really goes through the specifics of how this influence happened, right? Because your movie talks about three aspects to the trolling operation. And the trollers, these young kids who can't find jobs, but now have found what seems like easy money, they're charged with creating personas. And the personas can be fake people, fake organizations, or fake local media that are then used to influence conversations. Tell us a little bit about how those mechanisms were used. They were like a, almost like a, a dirty, like shady PR company where they were thinking, you know, how do you have influence today? Influence today is not necessarily on TV. It's, you know, online. That's where everything's happening. Influence today isn't necessarily about bribing the somebody to, to pull a lever somewhere. It's like, let's just create some voices online that we can control and they don't have to be real. Right. And so they, on the internet, no one knows you're a dog, right? That's the, that's been the thing from the beginning. And on the internet, no one knows you're, you're a Russian journalism major just graduated. Instead, you're Jenna Abrams, conservative, you know, uh, young woman from Texas who wants to talk about the U S election. And who cares if like your English is kind of weird and they don't really talk that way anywhere. Definitely not in Texas, but you know, Sure, it's the internet and it's like we can look past those things. And mostly we look past it because the people who end up following these troll, these fake accounts, they tend to be people who share their point of view. It's like the poison of polarization gets us again, where it's like, oh, that person sort of shares my point of view. Yeah, I agree with what they're saying. They may not really be writing, you know, grammatical English, but who cares? Who cares? I'm going to follow that account. So what they did was they created these accounts and actually they weren't super political necessarily at the beginning. They created them, these people who seemed like Americans from all over the country. So you have your conservative young woman from Texas, you have a progressive activist from Baltimore, and one is, is liberal, one is, is conservative, but they don't really wear their politics on their sleeve necessarily. They talk a lot about pop culture, they talk about what's in the news, they talk about whatever trending hashtag of the day is out there. And once they've built up a lot of followers, once they've built up, you know, uh, a real a real following, because of course these fake accounts all follow each other to build up their influence. Once they do that and they have a little bit of a following, that's when they start dropping the little political nuggets here and there. And then when you get up to something like an election, it gets really pretty heated and it gets pretty toxic. And what's fascinating is how they are able to effectively target both sides. So on the one hand, you have this persona, Jenna, who you talk about in the film, uh, someone who is purporting to be a conservative white woman from Texas. On the other hand, you've got this group called Black Matters U.S., and I was so struck by this. This group, Black Matters U.S., 
created an online presence that was saying to Black folks, don't vote, burn down the system, subsequent to the creation of this group and, and the 2016 election. And again, folks, I don't, you know, it's hard to, I'm a lawyer, I'm not saying that this is causality that would hold up in court, but I'm just noting Fact one, Black Matters U.S., this fake organization, shows up purporting to speak on our behalf, telling people to stay home. In point two of time, 75,000 people in Michigan who'd previously voted for Barack Obama stayed home, and Donald Trump won that state by 10,000 votes. Now, again, causation, legal causality is one thing. I am just describing two sets of facts One happened uh, after the other. And no, I'm not going to be so disingenuous as to suggest that I don't think that these things had an impact because I think that they did. And I think that's why there was going to be a difference between Obama's numbers there and and, and Clinton's numbers there. There was going to be a difference. Hillary Clinton was never going to capture, you know, given the way that election was going and campaign decisions and the like, I think it's fair to say that Hillary Clinton was likely not going to capture all of Obama's voters in the first instance. So let's not put all of the blame on, you know, this Black Matters U.S. nonsensical group. But right. to- that was the genius of the work, too. I think a lot of people sort of want to kind of disregard the whole social media trolling thing. They wave it away and they go, oh, what's the big deal? They only spent a couple thousand dollars on Facebook ads or something. You know, you'll hear people say that all the time. It wasn't their main thing to spend money. They didn't, they didn't need to. They built up accounts. They had free accounts with tens of thousands of followers they could send messages out on. What they did was they spent a lot of time doing research. They did actually quite a bit of research and got to know, you know, the U.S. political system pretty well. And they, they got to see what those hot button issues were. And that's where they focused their attention and they focused their attention not on, you know, they didn't need to persuade people necessarily. They needed to, to be able to intensify the feelings and to polarize. And it's a lot easier, I think, to polarize and to push people in a direction they're already going and they're already feeling and make them feel more angry about those, the, the things that they're feeling than it is to necessarily try to like persuade somebody. They weren't trying to get somebody, you know, who cared about uh, Black Lives Matter in Baltimore to vote for Trump. You're not going to do that. The effort there is not going to be worth the return. But what you might be able to do is take, is try to take this incredibly powerful movement and do this cynical thing, which is to try to like hijack it. (laughs) You know, I'm with you. It's not 75,000 voters even in one state. But could it have been 15,000 voters, right? Could it have been that, that line? When you look at the totality of everything that Russia did in 2016, the social media that, you know, attack, because we're just talking about the trolling. We're not even talking about this whole other aspect that we document in the film of the hack and release of all of the, the emails. You know, you combine all of these things. You look at the close margins. There's, there were really good reason why nobody in Russia thought that Trump was going to win. It just didn't seem, seem to be in the cards, but everything broke his way and they were working really hard on his behalf and against Hillary. And when you add it all up and you look at what we, we put together in the film, you look at all the different pieces, it's pretty hard to deny that it might've been the difference. It's easy to draw that conclusion. Again, probably not something that's mathematically provable, but If you look at the totality of the circumstances, there's a good argument. But I think, 
once again, that's not a fact that's going to persuade somebody who has strong feelings about the president or against the president. I think that your film actually has a bigger message. And it's not just about Trump and 2016. It really is about this whole infrastructure that is designed to heighten polarization. You know, one of the things that one of the participants in your film says is that it's these trolling operations are only injecting into the conversation something that's already there. I mean, they're holding a mirror up to us. They're not making stuff up. They are just piggybacking on already existing divisive sentiments. So in that sense, it's kind of a lesson to us about being a little more careful about how we pick information, isn't it? Because there's a message in this movie that is much bigger than Donald Trump being a Manchurian candidate or not. Folks are super decided on that. Like, you couldn't get him impeached on the information that's pertinent to your movie. I just think that there's a thread here that's bigger than that. And I think that thread has to do with how we decide to engage with our political opponents and how we pick our information, isn't it? Yeah, I think that's absolutely right. That for us was was the, the bigger story and the more, more important one. What Russia did in 2016 would have had little to no effect if it wasn't hitting this country that was is as polarized as the United States is. It was in 2016. It's worse today. And that's on us because what Russia was doing was it's like in the movie where you got the little like angel on one shoulder and the devil on the other. And in Russia, it was a couple more devils popping up, you know, or it was a devil who was shouting louder. Right. But it's, it's also on us for, for wanting to listen in that direction, always wanting to listen to the, to assume the worst. And we see that in how this story was, was picked up after over the last few years, that polarization that happened where, you know, half the, the country is thinking Trump is a Manchurian candidate. He must, he must be. He signed some deal with the devil and now is going to sell the country down the river. And then on the other side, you have people saying this is a democratic plot, a witch hunt to take down the, the president, the president who nobody thought was going to be president. Yeah, they, all of these people, this vast conspiracy that was set up to do this thing that no one, you know, to, to counter this this presidency that no one thought was going to happen. That, that doesn't make sense at all. But rather than take this really logical understanding, you know, most people end up in one of these conspiracy theories because they want the simple answer that's not just simple, but also is speaks to their own grievances and speaks to their own anger and hostility. They're listening to the devil on, on the shoulder and it's happening again. People want to be validated. What they're looking for is some sort of validation. And if they're being validated by fake Jenna in Texas or fake Black Matters US in wherever they're supposed to be, then they take some comfort in that. So being fair, you know, if you were to look at this from the position of, say, a defender of the president, because we have talked a lot about Russian interference, I I think that what you describe in the movie is an infrastructure that could be maintained and utilized by anybody, by China, for instance. Do you know anything? There have been some loose murmurings about China being uh, in the pocket for the other side. You know, Russia wants one candidate, China wants the other candidate. Do you know anything about these sorts of trolling operations that are uh, taking place in other countries? So two things. For our election right now, the reporting seems to be that you have several countries that are trying to influence the election. 
Russia, China, and Iran are the ones that get mentioned the most. The consistent reporting has been that the Russian threat is far more active um, and far more serious than the others and is definitely oriented the same way that it was in 2016, which is, you know, against Trump's opponent for Trump. China is is reported to also be undertaking some influence operations, but they're not, you know, they seem not to be quite as widespread or uh, advanced. I think the whole conversation, though, is kind of crazy to me. Uh, having worked on this film, and, you know, you've seen it and, and can see the how devastating the uh, attack was on our political system in 2016. And this is an understanding that it's a complicated picture, but in within the government, people who are meant to defend us and defend our political system, you know, they've understood the broad strokes of, of this attack for years now, since shortly after it happened. For us to be here four years later and talking about, well, it's not just Russia, it's also China, so it's fine, it's balanced, right? <laughs> it's a little crazy to me that that's what we're hearing because shouldn't we all just be upset that any of it's happening? I don't want to exaggerate in the, the metaphors here because obviously nobody died from, from, you know, this attack in 2016. But, you know, it's like you have a Pearl Harbor happen. And then four years later, it's like, hey, somebody is, is attacking Hawaii again, right? And somebody else is coming in and there's a whole other attack and the Navy's burned down again and all our ships went down. And it's like, shouldn't we have thought about maybe doing something about that in the four years between the attacks? And because we're polarized, I think we didn't. Because we're so polarized. I I, I think you just nailed it. Because we're so polarized, there's a tendency to say, well, China's interfering. You know, they're going to try. So it all balances each other out. When frankly, regardless of who you are voting for, if you are a citizen of this democracy and you want our democracy to be decided by our voices, we should look askance at anybody participating. I mean, I don't care if you're gosh darn Denmark or Ghana. Like I want, my election should be decided by me and by my fellow citizens. However, Javier, however, this is just the same type of propaganda. I'm throwing out an argument. How is this different from any type of propaganda that has always happened throughout the history of elections. Any election, there certainly have been elections in other parts of the world where America um, has sought to exert some influence. So how is this any different from what we've been doing in other places for decades? Yeah, we could have made, well, we could have made a lot of different, different films, right? We chose to make a film about what happened to us in 2016, what happened to our country and what was done to us. And if we go into a little bit of history uh, with Ukraine, and even there we show, you know, the Russian perspective is the U.S. interferes everywhere, and we were just getting what we deserved because we had done this in Ukraine, we had done this in Russia. That's that's the Kremlin point of view, that we, we had already, we had interfered in their elections, and they were just paying us back. I think their, their evidence, especially on the Russian elections, is, is a bit of a joke. But it's not to say that the U.S. hasn't interfered in elections, you know, over over the years. Of course it has. But it doesn't mean we have to just sit back and take it right now in 2020. Yeah, I was going to say. Right? One, we should be ashamed of those things. Those should be like national sources. Like, those are black marks on us, not things to say like, you know. It's not precedent. It's not precedent. It's not how things are supposed to roll. 
And frankly, hey, hey we've, uh, you know, we bombed other countries, but this doesn't mean Yeah, okay. right, exactly. So come on, we, we've, we've messed up before, so we're fair game. Um, I wanted to have that conversation because I think that so often what's thrown back against us as Americans is, well, y'all weren't perfect, so we can do anything that we want. And I don't buy that. Um, I think that we really have to pay attention to the things that you point out in the movie. And again, it's much bigger than President Trump and Russia. It's more about how there is a whole infrastructure that is geared toward maintaining chaos. It's a line in the movie. Chaos is a way to get by. Chaos now exists for its own sake. And there are those who are there to foment it. You know, before we go, I think it's really important, especially hearing from you as a journalist, there are people who get a lot of news on Facebook. Again, especially now, they are homeschooling, they are working at home, they're doing all sorts of things, double-checking sources and fact-checking info on uh, that they get on Facebook from friends may not be a first-order priority. How do we do a better job of making sure that we get accurate information, not necessarily comfortable information. We should have information from different views. But how do we make sure that there's not another fake Jenna or fake Black Matters US? And again, uh, you also point out that they were doing things offline, that a lot of these groups are doing things in person. How do we become better consumers of political information? Yeah, it's a good question. I think it's the sort of, it's the, the million dollar question. This is, um, this attack that happened against our country and continues to happen, it was cheap. It was cheap, you know, uh, a big return on the dollar and in defending against it is not easy. You know, there's the old Mark Twain line about how a lie makes its way, is, is halfway around the world. Well, the truth is still getting its pants on or something, right? It's like, I think before this, this film, this was true after working on this for years and seeing the depth of the disinformation campaigns online, I have such an enormous amount of sympathy for people trying to understand what is true based on what they're seeing coming at them on the internet. If what you're, you're doing is getting your news entirely from, from Facebook or entirely from Twitter, it's, it's really hard to tell what's, what's true and what's false. There's some some very good news organizations out there, obviously, but news in general has been withering over the past few decades, especially local local journalism. I mean, one of the most one of the parts that made me feel sickest in doing this research is seeing the focus on on making fake local news organizations that Russia was doing. They were they were targeting something that we can't even build ourselves that we because they knew it was important let's make a fake little local newspaper because they're missing these days and people want that and need that. And because the business model shifted, you know, a lot of those organizations just died. So where do we get our news today? Well, we're getting it from somebody random on Facebook who's forwarded it from 10 other people. And you lose the sort of chain of custody of, of the truth. And no one knows where the, where the, the rumors start and they're ending with all of us huge amount of sympathy for it. And hey, I'm in the same boat as, as everyone else. And what do you what do you do? To go back to where we started, there was this study that was done in Ukraine a couple of years ago, where they were looking at how people use social media there, and what the effect of Russian disinformation was in Ukraine. This is in the last couple of years, not like, you know, 10 years ago, when, when this was all starting. And they found that actually the Russian disinformation was way less effective there than it used to be. 
And it was because in Ukraine, these stories had become so well known and people had realized how disinformation campaigns had been so effective that they really took to heart. It seems in the, the study was shown, it seemed to be not in like this sort of cynical way, like you can't believe anything, but in this kind of like positive way, like we need to use the web to, to pass good information, but we need to be skeptical of the things we need, we see, you know, we need to challenge things when we can. Yeah, we don't have time to, to look up the sources for every last, you know, news story that we see, but we should be thinking twice before we look at the story that seems to confirm our worst suspicions about someone else or some, you know, some organization and think like, that's got to be real because, you know, I know that they're the worst. <laughs> that very well, it could be the devil on your shoulder, you know, whispering this, this thing and we're not paying attention to the angel at all anymore. And I don't know, this is my own personal view. It's, there's, there's something to be said for trying to have a little bit of charity in terms of how we interpret other people's remarks and points of view. We don't take them for the, the worst possible version of what they meant or what was said or, you know, or whether something even happened because it could be fake. It might not be real. And so I think there's something to be said for that. We need to look for good sources of information. We can't just get all of our information off of Facebook. We need to be skeptical about the things that we see and challenge things and not necessarily accept something just because it fits our point of view. And I think we just need to be a little bit more, more charitable to, towards each other. We'll be stronger as a country and as a democracy if we are, because it's that polarization, it's that shoot from the hip attacks on, on people who we disagree with that have made us so vulnerable. In 2016, it makes us vulnerable now. So incredibly vulnerable. And again, even if we don't have the time to fact check everything, that means if you don't have the time to double check it, then we should be skeptical about believing it or passing it on or repeating it. And we're all guilty of this. I mean, I, I am no better than anybody else. I see something that I like on Facebook, you know, I might click like and forward it. And who knows, you know, it could be like the Danish Fred. <laughs> uh, I'm going to make up a name and any name I make up is going to get me in trouble. So I think that, uh, I think you get the point. I you do the same thing. If, if I see it, if I see like, like an article that says like, you know, the, the Knicks are going to be good this year. I'm like, I'm going to share it. Yeah. Cause that's definitely true. And it's always wrong. It's obviously actually just false every time. And so, you know, there we go. We're, that's bad, that's bad passing of information. And it's not unlike what happens, you know, what's described in the film where, these fake personalities uh, would create new stories. They all are a part of the same network, so they like each other's stories. So something shows up on your feed, it's already got 10,000 likes, and you think that it's necessarily credible, and you pass it on. It may not be credible. Agent of Chaos, it's on now on HBO. It raises really, really important questions about how we get our information, who we trust for our information, and what are the rules of play, frankly, when we're engaging with one another? Tell me, did anything interesting or exciting happen to you? You get chased by any agents in the dark alleys or corners? Thankfully, that, no, no chases. Um, I guess it could have been fun if I, were, if I had made it out. So when you're going to Russia and you're going on a movie like this and you're, the whole movie is about the Russian intelligence services. And, you know, we do our homework before we go work in a place like that. I was just so aware of the fact that we were probably going to be watched. Um, Russian intelligence, especially like in Russia is really intense and really good at what they do. And so, you know, we just expected cameras in the rooms and, and people possibly watching us in the streets. Russia's been pretty aggressive too with 
journalists at times, less so foreign journalists, but but it happens and and uh, Americans particularly. And so uh, there was a time when um, I believe was an entrapment attempt. I was sitting on a on a train and a three star uniformed three star Russian general, army general, sat next to me. The guy was sitting there with a with a briefcase full of what looked like classified documents, and and you know five minutes in the train ride, he falls asleep, and these classified documents <laughs> spilling all over the ground. And I'm thinking, you know, I reach down and touch one of these, and I've got handcuffs on me, and I'm you know being questioned, and it's not, it's it made me almost feel a little better because I just thought, you know, if this is what's happening, this is the entrapment attempt. They've got like the B team on us. That's like the pretty- B. That's like the C minus team. Oh, I'm falling asleep, and now my documents that are all marked yeah. top secret yeah. have fallen out on the floor. Oh my gosh! I wonder if that American will pick them up. Was it kind of like exactly. that? Exactly. Exactly. <laughs> so I thought, you know, and so he's like fall. You know, he's he's falling asleep, and these documents are sliding out, and I'm just like kicking them back in the bag, and I'm like just get. I'm not gonna touch these things. Like this is this is silly. I know I know what I'm I'm doing I, at least to this extent. There was also. Um, several hacking attempts that happened later on that seemed to be from the, the A-team side of, of things. So we were actually targeted, uh, had some, some phishing emails come in. I had a phone destroyed in what looked to be a hacking attempt and had emails come in that were, you know, these fake, fake Google, you know, reset your password emails. And I previously worked on a movie about cyber warfare. I'm, I, I came into working on this one, like ready to sort of, be suspicious about things like that. And these were really well done. And uh, we had some great cybersecurity people who helped us and looked at them and actually traced them back to the Russian military. Wow. Um, they were the same the same hacking group that hacked John Podesta in 2016. Did they get anything? I didn't click on the link, but they targeted several people on our team. Nobody had clicked on the links, thankfully. Um, Don't I, click it, on the links. Like that is risk <laughs> management 101. Don't click on the links if you don't if know who it's get, coming from. That absolutely is, is true. If you get, I, when I get things that I'm not expecting to get, I will send them back to the person. I'll forward them to the person because you reply and sometimes it's going to a fake address that looks like yours. Coming like to so that your, Nigerian your guy who has $10 yeah, billion exactly. dollars and his, you should send them back to him. Oh, so can you go back to Russia? Uh, yeah, I went back. Um, I you've went been back, back since you've times. been back since you were embedded and since you made the movie. We finished it not that long ago. I don't know if I'm going to be going back in the next few months. Um, <laughs> I went a total of five times. I probably spent, ended up spending four or five months there over three and a half years. So it was a while, but not, I don't know if I'd say embedded. I spent some long, long stretches there. Uh, and we worked with some amazing Russian journalists and uh, amazing. We had some amazing Russian, Russian crew members too, who helped us make this movie. Uh, we wouldn't have been able to do it without them. And, and they're still there. And me going over there and doing this work is nothing compared to them doing this work and doing it really well. And being there uh, every there. day. Yeah, it's a different level. And, and they, do, they do just amazing work. And so, you know, I think I got, you know, these attempts at entrapment or at, at like looking at, at my emails and the threat those things offer is like nothing compared to what, what people deal with trying to, trying to tell the truth uh, about what's going on in, in a country like Russia. Javier Alberto Botero, thank you for being here. The movie is Agents of Chaos. It is available on HBO. Check it out. Javier, thank you for being here. Thank you for having me. Take Thanks care. so much. Okay. Bye. 
The Tanya Acker Show is written and executive produced by me. Sam Fergoso is my producer. Andre Lynn is my editor. Cole Mitchell is my composer. Sydney Freeman is my production assistant. And my show dog is Maximus Justice, also known as Max. If you like us, please go on to iTunes and leave a five-star review. Maybe I'll even have the chance to read it on the air. I will give you my hugest and most profuse thanks if you do. Thanks for listening, everybody. 